I do feel that this is unique. I do feel that people are ready for a complete change, for a revolution, for a difference when it comes to who people feel loyal to, who will bring them the needs that they have when it comes to day-to-day life. And in this sense, I think we are ready to completely revise the sectarian structure of the country. Um, and how it's been built in um, and institutionalized over many decades. Zahra Hankir. It's a build-up of years and years of neglect and corruption by the state on the people of Lebanon. Um, and also that the exasperation and the frustration is at alarming levels considering the state of the country, its finances, its corruption, its infrastructure, its political instability. It's kind of a tipping point, I think. And do you sense that at the core of this revolution that there is a demand for a new way of governing? Or do you see this more as simply... A, almost a revenge against the economic malaise and the corruption people have unfortunately gotten used to and are now trying to get rid of? I think it's a combination of the two. I don't believe the two are mutually exclusive. I also wouldn't use the word revenge. I think people want basic human rights, basic standards of living, which they have not seen. I think that people are ready to see a new form of governance, whether that's through technocrats or a reconfiguration of the current system, and also that they're they're demanding you know, more from the state. I mean, if we look at the economic situation of the country, it's it's a near collapse at this point. So mm-hmm. I think it's a combination. Now, I know I'm going to go back in time a bit that you were covering the economics that to some degree led to the Arab Spring. Do you sense that there is a similar tipping point that is now being felt in Lebanon that was not felt 10 years ago? It's a difficult question because I think each country is quite unique in its grievances, but I do think economic grievances are, are at the top um, of mm-hmm. the pyramid, um, among others. But it's it's crucial. I mean, we saw what happened in Tunisia, that that was rooted also in a combination of economic uh, disaffection and and political uh, corruption. Mm-hmm. And uh, in Lebanon, it does feel that way. I do remember in 2005, when we were out on the streets protesting um, the assassination of Rafi Hariri, the sense then was uh, very much uh, political grievances that were directed towards Syrian presence in the country. Uh, whereas now you feel it's so much um, more intense and deeper than that because it is a reflection in Entirely of the the difficulties people are facing in terms of you know cost of living right. uh, and yeah. and debt accrual and, and so much that has filtered through from the very top you know to to the to the day to day life of, of the average Lebanese citizen and I feel that we we are at a turning point the state itself is at a turning point so there is no way that the citizens can sit at the sidelines and not have a have an intense reaction to that. And I, for one, am quite proud to be Lebanese at this moment of time, to feel that people have reached that level of um, disaffection that they can no longer tolerate 
the corruption that these politicians have been getting away with. You know, I'm glad that you mentioned uh, the, the, the March 2005 protests. The intensity and the passion is there. I mean, it was there in 2005 and it's there now, but the crowds are much more, I would say, um, unified in terms of the economic dissatisfaction with the country and overall dissatisfaction with how the political ruling class has been dealing with the country rather than a more pointed grievance at the time in 2005 towards the culmination of political factors that led to the assassination of Rafid Hariri and and many others following him. So it's a different dynamic and it's also a different feeling on on the ground for sure. I I would say it's far more um, all-encompassing this time around. And also, I guess, geographically, it's fundamentally changed. I mean, March 2005, if, if I'm not mistaken, was localized primarily in Beirut, from what I remember, that it was largely a Beirut protest. And this time yes. around, it's almost, I mean, the whole country seems to be protesting at once. Uh, I absolutely agree with you, and that's what I meant by all-encompassing in part, is that you're not only witnessing people from all levels of um, all different classes, you're also witnessing people from all over the country united in their anger and um, feelings of betrayal by the state uh, and the politicians that, that have been serving them. So uh, I do think that it's it's quite unique, and I think we, we mustn't forget also that this is a revolution of the working class. I mean, even though the middle class and upper class have joined in, I would say that this is largely driven by those economic factors that have seen the working class struggle. I mean, my my own mother is a teacher. She teaches the underprivileged at universities, and she tells me, you know, her students are in their early 20s, and they just, they cannot find work. And the stories that you listen to on a day-to-day basis on on Lebanese news of the people on the streets who are protesting are absolutely harrowing. I mean, people who cannot afford basic living uh, expenses, they just cannot get through the the week without having to borrow money, without having to resort to to real um, extreme circumstances just to get by. I mean, I think that's what really makes this unique, is that there's this level of we can't go back now. It's become intolerable. The infrastructure itself is a story in and of itself, a lack of electricity and the generators and the the garbage crisis and Mm -hmm. all of that has culminated, I think, in this moment in time. You know, it's it's quite fascinating that it's 30 years since the civil war ended and three decades of mismanagement, economic collapse, political stagnation. It's almost like we've been frozen in time since the civil war ended. There aren't many geopolitical factors uh, at least uh, in an immediate sense when you look at what's happening on the ground that are affecting the people. But I would say it's also largely geopolitical given certain um, allegiances between some parties and, and other countries. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, those those allegiances have been, have been set in stone um, for, for some years now. Uh, but have continued to grow in a destabilizing way. And we see what's been happening in Syria as well. And in that that sense, I really feel that Lebanon, it's so complicated. You can't really discount all of those external factors. Um, The involvement of Iran and and, uh, Saudi Arabia and Syria and what's going on on the borders, all of these elements come together. So I do feel that, you know, that 
while there has been a level of stagnation since the end of the civil war, I think the geopolitical factors have been swirling and continue to swirl around Lebanon and largely determine what happens within the country at any given time. Even now with these protests, I would say they play a large factor. There is a sense that, you know, May 2008 is still on people's minds, is that, you know, things can get violent very, very, very quickly in mm -hmm. Lebanon. Mm -hmm. the, you know, the country is rife with weapons and rife with, um, you know, political um, uh, passions that would drive uh, droves of young uh, people to fight one another if they were instructed, I believe, by certain political figures. Right. I think at this point, I don't think that's in anybody's vested interest. So that is why the situation continues the way it is. But we also don't know what's happening behind closed doors. I mean, this is also largely an economic crisis. So, you know, it's on multiple levels where they're having to deal with the economic fallout of the actual country and dwindling dollar reserves and the banking situation, but also with the political implications of what's happening and, and who the Rudy class are at this point in time. So it really is quite, um, quite complicated. And, you know, God forbid, we really hope that, that this doesn't turn violent in, in a way that it hasn't in other countries. So in many ways, while there are economic grievances in Lebanon um, that make the situation similar to protesting in other countries, I think there are different geopolitical factors at play mm -hmm. that um, have, have prevented the, the situation from unraveling. You know, it hasn't, it hasn't unraveled in the way that it has in other countries. You know, it was actually a, a moment, a tense moment where, must be now three weeks ago, that the the anti-protest protest took over Martyrs Square and their tents were being burned to the ground and, and there was some violence on the streets, but hours later, the tents were back up and there were only peaceful chants among the protesters. And that was a that was a real test, I think, where there were no sectarian slogans being hurled out by the protesters. They kept to their killon yani killon, prove that Lebanese can demonstrate, can confront, but they don't necessarily need to fight each other. That was a relieving moment. I think that the resilience and the restraint on the part of the protesters themselves um, who are leading this revolution is absolutely incredible. I mean, yeah. not just that, the level of organization. When I visited uh, Martyr Square and I, and I saw, you know, just after 11 o'clock, um, all of the young protesters coming together to clean up the streets yes. and to recycle some of the, the rubbish that's left on the streets. And then, you know, you, it, it's just incredible to see that level of um, enthusiasm and resilience and consistency among the protesters to keep this revolution going. Um, and, you know, with respect to the protesters who you said, the counter um, protesters, um, you know, I do believe these are stooges of certain political parties. And you see it in every state, really, when you have mass protests, you'll always have the, the, the smaller counter protests. So yeah. it wasn't at all surprising um, and it was very um, uh, frustrating and um, deplorable that they dismantled the tents but again I point to the resilience and the strength of the actual revolutionaries themselves who who have been incredibly restrained um, despite all of these uh, setbacks these accumulated setbacks and I, I this is actually a nice way to introduce your book. And uh, the reason I reached out to you a few months ago was when you were in New York. 
uh, at a book talk, and it's uh, the book is Our Women on the Ground, Essays by Arab Women Reporting from the Arab World. There's a nice uh, flashback that you share with your father in the early 1990s, where your father is telling you these almost nostalgic memories of a country that's completely in chaos and, and violence and recovering from a 15-year war. And I just wanted to ask you now, and now we're going almost three decades later, when you're watching Lebanon on the news today, are you hopeful that in the years to come, things will improve in this country? And the reason I'm asking you is, in the early 1990s, a lot of us were hopeful, maybe we were young, but our parents were very hopeful that the post-war order was meant to bring prosperity, an end to violence, and you know, a, a proper sense of rebuilding. And of course, it, it only materialized in a superficial way, unfortunately. And you said it earlier, the geopolitics of the region are very complicated, and they tend to hit Lebanon very hard. But do you think that maybe this moment is going to lead to a healthier, uh, more prosperous Lebanon and, and region? Or do you hold a bit of, not to say, maybe not cynicism, but extreme caution that this could go the other way as well? I don't want to sound too grim. I wouldn't even say I'm cautiously optimistic. Mm. I'm just cautious. Um, I think prior to, actually prior to these uh, protests and this revolution, I had far less hope um, than before because there was a sense, I think, among Lebanese of resignation, of this feeling that, okay, this has become you know, too deep, this level of stagnation and corruption. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, what can we do about it? You know, that's basically what the, the, the sentiment. Um, but the fact that there was a tipping point and that, you know, this ridiculous WhatsApp tax um, came <laughs> into play yeah. that spurred it or triggered it in many ways. And the fact that people responded in that way, for me, is incredibly... Um, encouraging because it, it actually indicates that people will no longer stand for what had been going on for decades and yeah. in that sense I believe it's positive. The reason that I'm cautious is because of all of the factors we've already spoken about. The volatility of the internal situation when it comes to the economy itself being on the brink of economic collapse depending on how they deal with forthcoming payments that, that the government has to make and also the geopolitical situation um, being surrounded by Syria, Israel, the, the Iran and Saudi Arabia situation, all of these factors make this an incredibly volatile situation and it largely depends on how the political class respond to the people. So they may attempt to appease the people in some way, but there's some, you know, there's there's a level of, of, um, of uh, precariousness here that nobody can anticipate how things will unravel. This is a very unique moment in time because mm -hmm. the situation could take any number of directions. We have no, no idea where the country is headed, I would say. So I'm quite cautious, but I'm very hopeful and encouraged by the youth being on the streets and by the people of various classes coming together mm -hmm. to protest to protest the situation that they've been in. You know, there's there's two elements in your book that I think are perfect for the moment. The, the first one is, and, and you call it the citizen sahafi, which of course is just citizen journalist, but it it uh, it is really taking hold this time around in Lebanon. And I wanted your perspective on on journalism and what's happening in Lebanon. I I am refreshing my Twitter feed. I'm looking at Instagram. 
I interviewed uh, Jean Asir, who works at Megaphone News. I interviewed a, uh, a podcaster named Joey Ayub. I, I've spoken to Nayla Twaini about the role of a traditional outlet like an Nahar. And it just seems like the common theme is that social media matters. And I wanted your opinion on this. Is citizen journalism uh, central to this story, in, in your opinion, as someone who's written for traditional outlets? Do you see this as a as a chief component in the way people are accessing their news when it comes to the revolt? I do think that citizen journalism is playing a huge role, not only in this revolution um, and uprising, but in uprisings across the Arab world. And that increasingly, you know, we do have people turning more and more to Twitter and Facebook Live and other um, social media outlets to tell the story of what's going on on the ground without any filters. I mean, as we know, um, the state of media in Lebanon is incredibly fractured and it does... um, in many ways, reflect the uh, the sectarian political configuration of the state. Um, while I do think that coverage is important, so is the coverage of social media activists and mm-hmm. citizen journalists who are who are not going through any filters at all. They are literally. Um, posting what they see. Right, uh, and right. some of them are traditional reporters, like Luna Sufwan at Vice Arabia, Karim Shaib. I mean, some of mm-hmm. these people are actually reporters, but they're also using social media to put forward their version of what they're seeing, what I believe to be crucial coverage, because it's not going through editing. And, yes. you know, any international media coverage as well of Lebanon is going to be one step removed. Actually, the international media coverage, I think, has improved substantially um, as compared to previous years. So I do think that it's been quite decent. Um, But I think these things all need to be combined, both local media coverage, citizen journalism, international media coverage, and also independent outlets um, and people like yourself who are packaging voices and putting the the story out there. So if I were a consumer of news on Lebanon, I would want to go to all of those different um, outlets and follow lots of people on Twitter who are on the ground doing great work, particularly women, and that relates also to my book, which is that you cannot tell the story of any conflict or instability without it being told by women who are also telling stories about women. And there are women on the ground who are actually highlighting the very important role women are playing in this revolution. And as you know, this revolution has been referred to as a woman's revolution. Um, If you go to Marcher Square, you see the graffiti everywhere. And a lot of women are putting forward that narrative, very importantly. And also, you know, just locals. I think you need that local voice, whether you're a local male or a local female, to speak of the grievances that led up to this point. That level of understanding comes from people who have lived through it. So I think what I would do if I was consuming this elsewhere would be to get all of those voices together and to prioritize local voices. You know, you delivered the second point for me. (laughs) (laughs) I want to just take it one step further. Uh, Do you, I mean, I've asked this question several times and I've gotten a variety of, of, uh, of responses. Do you think this is a breakthrough moment for women in Lebanon? And I don't mean it in a superficial way. I mean it in a sincere structural uh, societal readdressing of the role women play in Lebanon. And I know that women play a very central role anyway. What I mean is the respect for women on the ground. 
and perhaps addressing things that have not been addressed, whether it's the right to pass nationality or, for that matter, religious courts and things that affect women on a day-to-day basis. We've seen women on the streets. We've seen images of women leading their own protests. I want to ask in a, in a deeper sense, do you think that this is a moment Lebanon will really treat its women equally? I think that's a difficult question to answer because it depends on what you mean by treat. I mean, there remain issues with women's rights in the country, but I think that there's a level of awareness now mm. about the role that women play when it comes to political change. And um, I think women have always been there. It's not a, a matter of them suddenly coming to the forefront. You know, women have always been there doing this work yes. and advocating for this sort of change. But I think that the awareness of women and their importance when it comes to this change in advocacy and activism has increased. And I think mm-hmm. generally across the region, actually, women are being recognized more and more for the role that they're playing. I mean, if you look at Sudan, you have to have that one image to, sure, for sure. people to realize that actually, yes, women are at the forefront of the revolution too. But I mean, they have to be and they have been. I think there's also an element of, you know, women feel much more encouraged because these things play into one another, right? Where there's a recognition of women and then more and more women feel that they want to play a big part and it's it sort of snowballs in a very positive way and it's also evident in media and journalism where you know women have always been doing this kind of work but now they're being recognized more and more because people recognize you cannot tell the full story of any country without having a woman's voice in it mm-hmm. so to your question i mean i don't necessarily think that this is that we're going to look back and, and think, oh, wow, this was a turning point for women. It depends. It remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. But what I would say is that it is encouraging and heartwarming to see that women are doing this kind of work. They are they are taking these kinds of risks and, they, and they're getting the attention that they deserve, the attention that they haven't had for decades, really. Um, and I think in that sense... Um, that's positive, and, and I hope it continues, and that we, you know, it, it, it translates um, in, in other ways and in, in other um, uh, situations in the country, not just when there's a revolution. Um, but yeah. you know, it, looking forward, we would love to see more political representation of women, and um, yeah, I'm, I think I'm I'm optimistic on that. I I believe that um, the women are going to continue fighting for their rights. That's not going to stop. You know, I've heard these uh, sort of, they seem to be eccentric ideas, but the more I hear them, the more I enjoy them. Rather than a Christian Muslim quota, you can have a female, male, uh, 50-50 parliament. <laughs> I mean, very th- radical. Very That's radical, very and it prob- probably <laughs> will not happen, but it's it's enjoyable because the more you hear these things, the more they seem reasonable, and, and they are reasonable. There's not there's no reason for it not to be, I mean, quotas in themselves are, are ridiculous when it comes to religion. And I think uh, sectarianism, unfortunately, its negative aspects have shined in Lebanon. Its its positive aspects are there. I've spoken to several people with maybe a, a historical view on sectarianism, and they emphasize that the pluralism of Lebanon, this breathing space among communities, is largely there because Lebanon's government has held on to its sectarian its confessional power-sharing structure that's now gone ba- going back to Ottoman years. And we're younger, and the generation that's now on the streets, the younger one, I don't think has any appetite for sectarianism in government. But for you, and I, I ask this just as a sort of, we're, we're maybe a bridge between the Civil War generation and the new one that has no recollection of it. Do, do, you, do you think that 
sectarianism can be modified or perhaps adjusted so that it's not central to Lebanon's story, but it's it's there as as a way to maybe buffer concerns among communities. You know what? This is such a great question because I really do think that we are sandwiched in between those two generations in in, in terms of this, you know, the, the civil war mentality generation and the younger, um, you know, let's say 25 and below generation who did not grow up with, uh, you know, sectarianism in this in the same way that we did. You know, mm-hmm. sectarianism was like the elephant in every single room, really. Absolutely. Um, and I think that that's refreshing and that. And in some ways, I think it was inevitable because you cannot continue to have this political configuration um, when that configuration leaves nothing to the youth, really Mm -hmm. very Mm -hmm. little opportunities to the youth. And what are they getting out of that? You know, what are they, how are they actually benefiting? Mm -hmm. I think that this idea of, you know, the sectarian um, structure benefiting um, people over the years has, has deteriorated. It's been eroded. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe, um, I think it might be, it might be too premature to say, uh, you know, we're witnessing the end of it. I think it's too entrenched in all honesty, Mm -hmm. but I do think we're going to see some revisions to it. And I Mm -hmm. do think this notion of, you know, oh, we're not going to support Gibran Basir because he belongs to a particular political party and we must be loyal to him right. you know what i mean i think that's sort of the the shift and and really the hope is in the generation who are below 25 who have that passion because they're experiencing the uh the, the i would say humiliation um of not having the opportunities that that they should have yes um and therefore uh i think that it you know you can't cut that off from the political sectarian system and they don't have the same allegiances that they used to have i think you know, I'm speaking too broadly here. I'm sure that the allegiances remain, and I don't want to be naive to that. I just think that we can have hope in that generation. We don't want to be naive to the fact that the, the political and sectarian allegiances remain in certain quarters. Mm-hmm. But I think that we should have hope that, you know, the, the, these people will no longer stand for the sort of injustices that they're facing. And that's why I said this really is a working class revolution in the sense yeah. that, you know, this this cannot go on anymore. And, and, you know, social media posturing aside and how it all looks sometimes can be packaged quite beautifully on social media, the, the revolution and the shisha and the dancing and all that. <laughs> you know, all of that is rooted in injustice. And, you know, that's what we really need to be focusing on is that, you know, this this is not going to go away anytime soon, and and I'm I'm hopeful that people will remain um, very very committed to this cause because it is a cause, and and we do need to see changes, and we do need to see a revision of the um, sectarian uh, configuration. I mean, I, I would say we need to see a collapse of it, but I, again, I don't want to be naive. I don't think that. That, uh, that, that we will see it collapse anytime soon of that configuration, but a significant revision, I would say, things, um, things, in, the, in, in lieu mm, of a collapse. Things tend to take long in Lebanon, whether it's a civil war that drags on and on, or whether it's a uh, sectarian order that we inherited some 150 years ago or even longer. And now we're talking about uh, a very slow-moving revolution, but it is still moving, and it's now in its second month, and see, like you said earlier, things are fluid, and this can take many different turns. Uh, okay. Just, just to wrap it up, Zahra, I, uh, you mentioned that you were you came to Lebanon during the demonstrations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you were here for roughly how long? 
for three days. Three days. Did, did, can I ask you, did you come solely to see the demonstration yourself? Oh, I did, 100%. I, I called it Revolution FOMO. I just couldn't not. Well, sorry, what is that? Revolution FOMO? Revolution FOMO. Fear of missing out. Oh, this my God. It's a millennialism, Ronnie. You should know it. Right. No, then, then I'm really happy that I'm not a millennial. <laughs> so, um, no, basically, I don't, I don't mean to be too lighthearted about it, but, mm-hmm. I, but I felt very much that I had a duty to be there. I wanted to witness it. I wanted to, to, to really um, to feel what people were feeling, even though I'm, I live in the diaspora and I'm immensely privileged because I live in the diaspora and I have the pass, you know, a Western passport. I still very much feel Lebanese. Um, I lived in Lebanon for half of my life. And the fact that I was watching from afar was painful. You know, I mean, I just had to be there. So even if it meant two or three days, I, I wanted to be. I wanted to be in my hometown, Saida, too, to see how people in Saida were mobilizing versus how people in Beirut were mobilizing. And it was an incredible experience. It was electric. It was positive energy through and through. And I'm, you know, I can say that I haven't been proud to be Lebanese for a very long time, and I certainly feel that way currently. I'm very proud, very, very proud of the people. Well, you know, I'd like to quote you to you because I think you found a poetic justice within yourself. Uh, and this is air conditioning aside. The underpinnings of the Arab Spring were indeed largely economic. But because I was reporting from the air-conditioned skyscrapers of Dubai instead of on the ground in countries like Egypt, Syria, Libya, and Tunisia, I felt like a fraud. I can only imagine that in the cold, dreary weather of London, you wanted to warm up a bit and you showed up in our October revolt to feel the warmth and the passion on the streets. So there you go. (laughs) I absolutely love how you wrapped that up. To be at a distance... um, from your homeland when there is such instability um, in its own way is a challenge Um, and you know I think many people in the diaspora feel the same way and I think many people in the diaspora are returning to Lebanon for this reason as well to to partake in the revolution Um, but yes massive respect for everybody on the ground and and to you as well for for packaging these voices well thank you Zahra and hopefully next time uh, we'll see each other in Beirut on the streets and I really appreciate your time and, and your perspective from London. So thank you. Of course. Thank you, Ronnie.